0: Hello. This is the HP Lovecraft Book Club. It's a Lovecraft read-through in which I'm looking not only at the stories, but also the revisions and his letters and his nonfiction writing. And we're uh, been working our way through uh, Lovecraft stories one at a time. Sometimes uh, uh, covering one story over several episodes, and, and that's going to be more common as we get to the the final um, set of, of of short stories. And so today we're, I'm looking at the Dunwich Horror, and I already kind of covered my overall introduction of the Dunwich Horror. I didn't say much about the story itself, uh, mostly about the setting of Dunwich, and a, and a bit about my, my, my humble theory about how we can interpret Dunwich in the context of his other um, cities, his other towns of, of New England, uh, Lovecraft's overall geography. Uh, and that's something I want to get back to a little bit today, too, is the geography of Dunwich is surprisingly well developed i think it's um you know the world building that lovecraft went into it is you know he's he never really created the cthulhu mythos that was more of a creation of people that came after him uh he did talk i guess about arkham cycle or something but he didn't have this idea of like a of a connected world um although he does kind of mention stories once in a you know sometimes you know which he's doing a little bit of world building, but that's not his main agenda here. Each story sort of stands on its own. But, um, he's got a really well developed geography of the places he talks about. You know, it's like Providence in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. There's so much detail about, you know, the different neighborhoods and the different locations and, and the buildings and all that. And, you know, Innsmouth, he actually draws a map of Innsmouth in in which has been reproduced and and used by by scholars trying to understand that story. So that is a very clear geography. Arkham has a very clear geography in, in places, um, and Dunwich does too. John Dunwich is a very well developed geography as well, with the the Devil's Hop Yard and the in the main town and you know, all these different locations, Cold Spring Glen, all these different places, and and it kind of works out well because. He needs to destroy these places. You know, Sentinel Hill, obviously. I, I can't believe I forgot that. Sentinel Hill being the the central location in the town and the place where the Watleys did their kind of magical, you know, rites, worshipping the, the outer gods. Yogg-Sothoth prim- primarily, but also the place where the climax of the novel takes place because that's where the Dunwich Horror himself sets up, right, to, um, you know, take a to do whatever he was trying to do, right? Um, which is, it's a little bit unclear. It's kind of like Kerwin in in uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, like what he was really trying to do, like after just raising people up and developing knowledge just seemed to have been an end game there because Charles Dexter Ward writes like, you got to stop him because, you know, it's going to, Joseph Kerwin's a threat to universe itself, right? And we get that sense here too, that what had they been successful... Um, something really, really horrible would have happened to the you know, to the entire universe but it's not clear, it seems raising yogg is, is is the heart of what they were after through these children, uh, of his these two, these twins, right? There's a story about twins. Speaking of that uh, something I didn't mention in the last episode either, which I think is relevant to this story is the, the influence of 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 Arthur Macon, uh, especially the great god Pan story the the death of Wilbur Watley, which we'll talk about a little bit later it seems so reminiscent of the final Scene in the great god Pan, right? And the great god Pan is also a story about a a, a child being born of a woman and a god, right? In that case, it's it's Pan or some kind of external force or, or horror And a woman and then much of the story Involves the exploits of this daughter as she Kind of terrorizes men and and, uh, Takes them to dark places It's a really interesting Victorian Novel because it's got this kind of sexual Puritanism but then like the horror is like uh, Of this Woman is is how she sort of Degrades these men sexually In in interesting ways but It's yeah it's it's very Much a Victorian novel Uh, now Lovecraft himself is not primarily interested in sex. I haven't read that book Sex and the Khu Mythos yet, and um I probably should because, you know, friends of mine have been telling me I should I should write a book about sex in Star Trek. And it's actually kind of intriguing because there's been a book about pretty much every other aspect of Star Trek. As far as I know, there isn't one about 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 sex, but um there's a lot of interesting stuff about sex and sexuality in um in Star Trek. But uh, because of, I mean, my point is maybe I should also read that book about sex in the Cathedral Missiles to see how this uh, that author kind of pulls out the the sex themes. I think there are some. I mean, certainly you have it in the Dunwich Horror in the sense of uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Lavinia Watley. That's her name. Lavinia Whatley is you know giving birth to this this these these half god creatures right these twins um and you have it in other stories too uh, but less less overtly than than maybe you might expect Um, but you know especially compared to arthur macon i think Lovecraft's a bit more restrained in his attitudes towards sex you know there's not many female characters this actually is a kind of a standout novel for the significant number of female characters compared to many of his others we have Lavinia Whatley we have a lot of the Dunwich Denzians floating around the story and many of them are are women and they have if not major places in the story they're they're they're, they're prominent in, in a sense you know they they have their place um at least as witnesses to the Dunwich Horror and I guess that's another thing I I should talk a little bit about when thinking about the Dunwich Horror Is kind of the role of the media and the role of the public and how that informs lovecraft storytelling here Uh, he's He's tried for instance the The objective narrator. He's tried first person narrative in like the post style. He's tried uh The piece together narrative of the call to cthulhu, right really innovative where you have these different notes and and letters and things that come together and make a story and and as the narrator kind of pulls it all together you're pulling it all together too from these uh, divergent pieces and you see him do this again in the case of Charles Dexter Ward and how he's able to piece together a story from different parts and we kind of follow Charles Dexter Ward as he learns more about his his his, his ancestor and we see like flashback scene, which is all put together so different narrative experiments and then in we saw how in Pikmin's model he does a uh, kind of a storytelling, right? Like a where the the tone of the narrator is casual, like someone just telling a story. Literally, they're telling a story over drinks, right? So he's he's trying different narrative styles. Um, and then later on, we get like a scientific report in uh, at, at "The Mountains of Madness," right? One of his most famous stories is basically a scientific report, uh, a scientific paper presented to a, a committee or something. Um, anyways. <clears throat> What's the Dunwich Horror do distinctly? Well, I think it. I mean, it's a little bit non-linear at times. Like we see the impact of the Dunwich Horror before we see the response of 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 our hero, um, uh, Armitage, right? Because Armitage kind of says we got to do something about this after the experience with Wilbur Watley. Sometime after that, the Dunwich Horror happens, but it happens earlier in the story. So some non-narrative storytelling here, which is is rather uh, I don't know if it's unique. I don't think I, I think Lovecraft may have done it before, but it's maybe not so dramatically. And then you have uh, the the witnesses, right? I think that's what's kind of distinctive here, really, about this story is how he uses the various witnesses to tell much of the story, especially in the second half. But to a lesser degree in the first half, because even some of our stories about Dunwich the the background of the town, all that is kind of told from the perspective of of various witnesses who could piece together some of the truth about it. But the uh, you know the second half of the story, the part of the horror itself, is is pretty much all told through the eyes of various people who saw it. Right, we actually see their their te- their their descriptions given in media conveyed over a party line phone because these were in the days when individual homes didn't have phones you you called a a central um, phone i guess and then people would call you hey you got a call right so there's just like one phone for neighborhood or or for, for the town so you get but you get these messages over this party line you have people in the media telling stories about it so there's there's these kind of those witness accounts even the final confrontation with the dunwich horror at the end is told from a distance from the eyes of, of various witnesses so i think that's a that's a interesting way to tell it and then we get like in his next story whisper in darkness like it's more of an epistolatory story it's the closest he gets to a true epistolatory novel so he's always kind of experimenting in different ways of writing stories and i think that's that's to his credit he's not a one trick pony All right. So to recap what I talked about last time, it was really looking at this, this backwaters in the context of Lovecraft's geography, backwaters like Dunwich, racial backwaters, tri-racial isolate kind of places, the kind of places eugenicists would have been interested in studying, right? We actually have him literally talk about some of these families of having degraded and non-degraded, degenerate and non-degenerate lines. Some that were more inbred and weird, and some that weren't. And the weird ones, the weird lines, the inbred lines, the corrupted lines, tend to be more closely associated with the mythos. They tend to be most closely associated with these outer gods, and they have—they're the ones who have a copy of the Necronomicon lying around. They're the ones who, you know, have nothing to lose. And this is kind of going back to themes we talked about when we looked at the Call of Cthulhu, in particular, where. You know a working class marginalized population. Now previous to this our marginalized populations were like the Armenian. Or the Kurdish immigrants right in the Horat Red Hook or the. Or the the. Brava Portuguese talked about the you know these mulattoes and biracial sailors. Kanaka's Eskimos and others. In the Call of Cthulhu. Or even the slaves and the sailors who get taken advantage of by Charles Dexter, or in this case of Charles Dexter Ward, by, by Joseph Kerwin. Now here we have another population of marginalized people. Now in the, for earlier, the earlier time we saw these people in his work was like in a, the story uh, Behind the Wall of Sleep. And there it's just more of a joke that these people are inbred and backward and ignorant and... Whatever it's it's just almost like a foil for the narrator and a chance for Lovecraft to rant a little bit about these people. Here they become a legitimate threat to the whole universe, right? And the same way these cultists in the Call of Cthulhu were a threat to the entire universe. So that was my the main thing I was trying to get at in the last episode, and I hope that's I hope that holds up. I think it does. I think uh, Lovecraft is. You know he has this kind of terror and fear of these people he presents them as certainly degenerate and inferior in his perspective but they're they're very dangerous there's something to be feared they're not something that can be be dealt with lightly right which is why he he puts so much of his effort on destroying these places or uh, i guess dunwich isn't destroyed uh, in the color of space the neighbors just sort of boycotted or forget, forgetting, right? Forgetting is a key part of it. Now, I guess in The Color of space, they're eventually going to, it's going to become a reservoir, right? Covered up. But there's this narrative of forgetting throughout so many of his stories. And that's one way of dealing with these. But that's itself doesn't really solve the problem because they're still there and they're still doing things, right? And, you know, it's more so than I think even the case of Charles Dexter Ward where you have like a complete kind of abolition of Joseph Kirwan's memory. By the hero of that story, and kind of a, t- a successful cover-up. You don't have that here in the Dunwich Horror. It seems, right? It seems uh, a lot of the remnants of danger are still there in the, the degenerate lines of the bishops, the degenerate lines of the of the Watleys. And this is, of course, what uh, like in the the fantasy fight games in their Arkham Horror card game, kind play, of played with in their in one of their campaigns. Uh, this idea that, like, the Dunwich Horror is not over, right? So you kind of pick up, the story picks up right after the events of the Dunwich Horror and, and kind of is a, a little bit of a sequel to it, right? But, I you don't know, like, they killed the one Dunwich Horror, but, you know, there's other things going on, right? Of course, that's just a game, but it, it, I think it kind of fits into this idea that this was an incomplete success, while the case of Charles Dixie Ward a much more complete success. Yeah, I've heard people say, like, ooh, the, the Dunwich Horror is the one story where the, you know, the heroes spe- defeat the the evil. It's like, I don't know about that. I think the case of Charles Dexter Ward, they do. I think um, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is a success. You know, I think there's there might be a, an ongoing danger, but, you know, victories happen. It's not so bleak. They're not all so bleak. Shadow over mouth. I guess not. Sometimes it's just like this is the way it is. Like in *The Whisper in Darkness*, the conclusion is just this is the way that it is. These things are real, and there's really aliens on the moon or Pluto, whatever, and they really have this technology and they can mind swipe people and you know deal with it. Right? That's that's. You know, same thing with kind of the mountains of madness. It's more of it's not even about a victory or a defeat. It's just deal with it. This is the reality of the world we live in. Anyways, um, so I don't even know how much I said about the story, but it's I think it's well known enough. I don't have to get too much into it. I'll just kind of highlight what I think are some of the interesting things here. Um, Now old man Watley wizard Watley. I think he gets called at one point in the story. And that's how I tend to call him wizard Watley. You know, he's his daughter or granddaughter, Lavinia gave birth to this child, Wilbur Watley. And he starts to grow and mature very fast. Speaking at age one walking very before normal kids should walk maturing. By the time he's like four or five, he's essentially like an adult. Uh, he actually attracts the media interest, which is kind of fascinating. Um, it's actually the second point of where you get media interest in Dunwich, right? And the media only comes when there's something weird or horrible happening, which contributes, I think, to the isolation and the fear of these kinds of communities in the popular mentality. right? This is where the freaks are kind of kind of media. That still might be the case, right? I think there is still this problem, and you know now the media is so much more centralized. the The local media, the local newspapers, are so are kind of falling on their face. They're shrinking content. Like every time I go back to Wisconsin, I I look at the daily paper, and it's like smaller and smaller each year. It's it's going to be a one page flyer eventually <laughs> if it keeps going. But you still have like I guess reporting and and journalism being done in the washington post new york you know wall street journal new york times but they're so coastal and they're so elite in their point of view right that we might actually lose storytelling about these places like dunwich and that's that's not going to just impact how they're presented and how they're and how we deal with policy for these places you know like we need knowledge about these places to make concrete policy but it also is going to be dangerous just in for it's going to be bad for historians whoever want to tell the story of these places uh, anyways um, so anyways about wilbur uh, here's what we write so quote w- here's what he wrote, wrote showing the speed of wilbur's growth quote when wilbur was a year and seven months old in september of 1914 his size and accomplishments were almost alarming he had grown as large as a child of four and was fluent an incredibly intelligent talker he ran freely around the fields and hills and accompanied his mother and all her wanderings at home he would pour diligently o- over queer pictures and charts in his grandfather's books while old Watley would instruct and catechize him through long hushed afternoons so he's by the time he's like 15 he's i think he dies when he's like 15 so he's already like an, an adult but his his features are totally weird like he's got that goatish face, you know, it's, we get his look, his evil look, is, which shows up pretty early in his development, quote, a settled, tac- tacit attorney was absorbing him, and for the first time, people began to speak specifically of a drawing look of evil in his goatish face, he would sometimes mutter an unfamiliar jargon and chant in bizarre rhythms, which chilled the listener with a serious sense of inexplicable terror, end quote. I think I did talk last time about how his... His his voice seemed not human. Like it, it seems to be made from organs that normal humans can't make. Um, but a really great bit early in the story, too, is like one reason I think they find out about Wilbur Watley is during World War I, 1917, they come to draft the local Dunwich people and they find they're all like inbred and can't be served in the military. It's really... You know, this is a great... Lovecraft moment where he really exposes his prejudices. Mm-hmm. They had hard work finding a quota of young Dunwich men even to be sent to developmental camp. So they just can't... They're not—they're useless for the army. They're useless for everything, right? Which is... It, they're wasted lives. If you've read Zygmunt Bauman's book, Wasted Lives, it's short. And it's kind of academic-y. <laughs> and... And it's kind of it's by like a philosopher, a sociologist. But you know, he wrote a lot of interesting short little books about liquid modernity, liquid love. Although I have a, I have several of these, but one of my favorite is Wasted Lives, which is just about this like it's like a lumpen proletariat, but they're even like more marginalized than the Marxian lumpen proletariat. The lumpen proletariat for Marx was just not class conscious. Um, but they're still relevant to production. But these are people who aren't needed. They, these are the people in like inner cities or, you know, the excess population in developing countries, urban areas. You know, they flee the rural areas because there's no longer a need for them, but there's, the cities are crowded. They live in slums. That this is like a growing percentage of the world population. And it's probably going to grow with automation and, uh, and growing productivity. Like if productivity continues to grow, I just read that like track economics book uh economics of Star Trek, and it's like a he was saying if you just have like a productivity growth of just like one or two percent, which is pretty modest um you know by two centuries later by the time of like Star Trek uh when it's set, we'll be like sixty times more productive per hour than we are now um and what's that going to mean? It's like we're just going to not need as many people to do stuff anymore to, to, to produce things for, for us. So, or it'll just be a wash in junk. So the solution, of course, is production for need. Um, but now I'm, I'm kind of off topic here. What I'm talking about here are the marginalized individuals in places like Dunwich. Not even useful for the army. Not useful for the economy. Yeah, a few can go off to Harvard because they're from the non-degenerate lines, but they don't come back, right? They're like the Native American children who go out to get an education and never return to the reservation. It's, I mean, isolation like, is such a big part of the story. It's, it's, if this is an integrated community, if this is in a society integrated to American culture and American society, you have a hard time believing that Dunwich Horror would happen. Because the people would have been like the people in in Arkham, who know better than to read, mess with the Necronomicon. It's just these people have nothing to lose, right? I don't even think Wizard Watley is like a villain. He's just like practical in a way. He just realized that's all he can he can do to to have a place in this world, right? It's a place this, like in this occult stuff, he has power, right? It's like the witches in the Middle Ages who who just uh what am i trying to say like the witches in the middle ages who you know like the widows or the unmarried spinsters who are totally marginalized in society so yeah why not fuck the devil and and cast spells and stuff it's if you want to believe like lovecraft believed that the witches were a real cult and a real so- social movement a real subculture in Amer- in in europe then who do you think is going to support that? It's going to be the most marginalized people, right? It's the same like with those Haitian slaves before the rebellion who were like, we're, the rumor is they sold their soul to the devil to make the revolution successful. It's like, well, what do you have to lose, right? The alternative is to be a slave. Um, all right. I'm kind of going off about this. But all right, that's Wilbur Watley. Now there's this twin, and the twin's not revealed till... Technically, the final page, it's not revealed to the final page that the Dunwich Horde is the twin of Wilbur Watley, but, you know, whatever. It's silly to talk about spoilers at this point. So at the same time, this other child was born and he stays in the house, which is why and then like the barn and they have to keep building on to it, make it bigger because he gets larger and larger and they're buying all these cows, this cattle. It's kind of reminds us of the case of Charles Dexter Ward where. Kerwin kept buying stuff—people, slaves, and uh, cows and animals and things that didn't. You know, he didn't seem to use. It's because he's using them for for to feed these creatures or use for experiments or whatever. That's happening here. The funny thing here is he he's paying for this with old old gold pieces, ancient gold pieces. Is these paint Where did he get this stuff from? Is it like in the family? I guess it might be in the family. I'm thinking of like the terrible old man who, who still uses the old Spanish doubloons. Is it the, I think it is the terrible old man who still uses those. Um, or the one in the picture in the house. No, I think it's the terrible old man who still uses those, um, you know. So which means it's kind of maybe been the family since they moved to America from pirate times or, you know, wherever the origin of this family is. Or straight from yogg that seems less likely to me. They've been in the family for a long time. So these traditions have been there for a long long time. But it's only as long as these people were like somewhat part of society. They never felt the need to go create a dunwich horror. They they you know, they they had a place in this world. But by the time the story takes place, they're so marginalized, nothing to do but create a dunwich horror. Right? Why not? Why not, I say? Um, anyways, So um, a lot of good stuff here on like the local rituals. And I'm thinking of chapter four here, um, which is mostly about the maturation of Wilbur Watley and his education. And old Watley eventually dies. I think he died. Yeah, he dies in this chapter, too. It's a great chapter. There's a lot here about continuing like traditions and rituals and things that they the family continues to do on like Sentinel Hill. Wilbur's continuing to grow up. He's getting his education from Old Man Watley, And he's getting a very specific education because he's got a job to do. He's got a job to do with his twin something about opening a gate um, to... Um, yeah, something that's like in the Lovecraft mythology, like the Lovecraft kind of pop culture, like in the games and stuff, gates. Gates appear a lot in those, but it's not that common in in Lovecraft's writings. This is, this is a story, though, that does have a gate. I mean, the thread of a gate. And, and who is going to come out of that gate? Not clear, but definitely we have a gate in here. It's, they actually quote the Necronomicon, and, and gates are discussed there. Um, so Watley eventually dies, and he tells the, the, the kid, Wilbur, like, you, you know the rituals, you know what you got to do, but there's some stuff missing, because our translation of the Necronomicon is incomplete. You have to go to Miskatonic. You have to go get the original Latin. Um version and and fill out like are we have missing pages right so you need to or the translation is not good enough so you have to go do that So Watley dies and we get the whippoorwills here so whippoorwills of course cycle pumps in In north new england culture, I guess is it a new england thing? I suppose so but You know they they accompany death And they show up at at moments of death and they're all over dunwich throughout the story um but Wilbur continues to learn. Um, or Here's the last, some of the last things Old Man Watley says. Feed it regular, Willie. Mind the quantity. But don't let it grow too fast for the place. For if it bursts, quarters, or gets out, afore ye opens, to Oyogs the thoth, it's all over and no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them, the old ones, as wants to come back. That's a good piece of evidence of what they're ultimately after. Some return of, I guess, Yaluxathos, Shubnigareth, these, all these gods. Um, so Wilbur continues to grow. It's you know seven, eight years after uh, the media becomes interested in him during the World War One draft drafting failure. Um, Lavinia dies not long after, so Wilbur Watley's kind of left alone to deal with his brother and he's doing more carpentry on the house, so it's constantly getting bigger and bigger. And we got like these external Dunwich Denzians who are sort of privy to all this. Like Earl Sawyer is gossiping about this. And everyone in the town is kind of like, why they keep building especially now that everyone's dying in the Waddy House, why do they keep building it bigger and bigger? Right? Um, at one point Wilbur moves to a shed. Because there's a, you know, I think is he trying to stay away from his brother or or there's not room for him in his house in in the house anymore? But anyways, now it kind of gets to the point at chapter five. We're about halfway through the story and it gets to this moment where Wilbur has to basically figure out all the spells he's going to need. Right. It's it's getting close to the time. Um, So he starts to seek the Necronomicon, right? And the, of course, there is a copy. He's eight foot tall by this point and, and continuing to mature. Um, he needs the, the Latin version. And if you remember, I did an episode on the history of the Necronomicon. It's written by Lovecraft. There's different translations, different versions. There's kind of, now the ones that Watley have is like a, like a hand copied kind of rough thing an English translation. It's um, kind of been in the family for a long time all t- cut up and there's pages missing right um, so this is the 751st page of his own defective volume which that's that's quoting the the text which missing so the necronomicon is pretty long um, you know that this missing page is 751 but he has to go to the latin version to kind of fill that in because it's really important for what they're trying to do and he goes there and and first this is when we first meet armitage Armitage, the hero of this story um, the librarian at Miskatonic University and he's like uh, I guess like he doesn't have a good reason to refuse him to read it or to look at it um, although he is a bit suspicious so he kind of looks over his shoulder as he's reading and we get a long passage of the Necronomicon about a page long which I think is the most we ever get you know in any Lovecraft's writings um, and it's all about, it's got connections to Kedath, Cthulhu, Shub-Niggareth, is mentioned. So a lot of gods we kind of met before. shub I don't think, comes up before. This might be the first story where he's mentioned. Um, but here we got this clear mention of a gate. Uh the Old Ones were, the Old Ones are, and the Old Ones shall be, not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene, walk serene and primal, undimensioned, and to us unseen. The Oxlathoth knows the gate. The Oxlathoth is the gate. The Oxlathoth is the key and the guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in the Oxlathoth. He knows where the Old Ones broke through of old and where they shall break through again. He knows where they have trod, earth's fields, and where they still tread them and why no one can behold them as they tread. So, again, a, a mention of of kind of what the, the plan here is. But but a lot of great mythos stuff here, like Kadath is mentioned, um, which a lot of readers wouldn't have had a lot of awareness of if they were reading this. The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath was not published, and you have the other Dreamwind stories. Readers of Lovecraft would have been aware of those, but I don't think Kadath is mentioned until the Dream Quest. So, he... You know, you can tell he was still thinking about that As a story Even if he was going to publish it Maybe he was thinking of something else that would come <coughs> Now Armitage looks at this And sees what he's reading And says this is bad news So he basically Well after Wilbur's done He's like I gotta check this out Just let me have it for a few weeks And Armitage is like we don't check out this book We don't lend out this book You, you can't And he kind of freaks out and says Well I'll just go to Harvard I'll go to Widener Weidner will let lend out, because Weidner has a copy. And Armitage is like, okay, go ask Harvard. But as soon as he leaves, he calls Harvard and says, don't lend, lend this guy this book. Um, now, Armitage b- makes a direct reference to Macon. Um, and connects what he thinks going on with this. He, he kind of suggests, he kind of thinks there's some kind of inbreeding between gods and humans. In Dunwich, so which is why he he thinks of Great God Pan, which is a shout out. It's like him. It's almost like an epigraph where he says, like, you know, I want to thank Arthur or Arthur Macon for in Great God Pan it really influenced me. It's that's the equivalent of him doing. He's doing the equivalent here. And Armitage kind of after this says, we got to do something about these backcountry folk. They're causing trouble, so he kind of commits to this. Um, Now, the next chapter, this is exactly the halfway point in the story, actually. Um, Now, the next chapter, we see, we hear about how Wilbur tries to go to Harvard. He tries to go to the Widener Library, and they don't lend him the Necronomicon. And he starts to freak out because of his brother's growth. Quote, Wilbur had been shockingly nervous at Cambridge, anxious for the book, yet almost equally anxious to get home as he feared the result of being away long, which is his brother's continuing to grow. Not cared for. You know, who knows what's gonna happen if he's not there to watch him. Um anyway, so he decides I gotta go back to Miskatonic, you know, and basically break into the Miskatonic University Library, steal the Necronomicon. But before he can do this, he is basically eaten by a dog. Um, I think there were some suggestions before that the dogs don't like Wilbur. And, and here that kind of pays off in the fact that these guard dogs basically can eat him. We're going to mention here of Professor Warren Rice and Dr. Francis Morgan, who Armitage kind of brings on board eventually in the climax of the story. I don't think we need to know too much about them, but there are other Miskatonic University faculty who, who are, are mentioned, at least in this story. I'm not sure if they're mentioned in others. I forgot, but anyways, they basically run across Watley's body, and it's totally not human, right? It's nine feet tall by this point. He's grown another foot. He's um, he's a he's a mystery. Um, quote above the waist, it was semi anthropomorphic. See, this is great. This is really where Lovecraft says, you know, I'm not going to just say this is an undescribable horror. I'm going to describe the horror. And he does a really good job here. It's, it's, he goes on for like a page or two pages with this death of of, of Wilbur Watley. I mean, he's not even dead. He's dying because he says some stuff. He ca- calls out some spells or something, prayers to with off and his body sort of dissolves. It's really reminiscent of the scene in The Great God Pan at the end where we see uh, this woman half god half woman this demon woman kind of transform and turn into different things as she sort of vanishes um, in her death throes we got black fur in this guy uh, feet that aren't hooves nor claws uh, it's got a tail tentacles underneath its skin I mean this thing is 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 barely human it's just like you can put a suit on it and it kind of, kind of poses a human but but underneath that there's very little human about um wilbur Watley. that's a great it's a great moment though i urge you to read it carefully it's a lot of fun he doesn't even seem to have bones or a skull or anything he's he's kind of all tentacles and his limbs have like little mouths on them super gross and, and kind of wonderful all right then we get to the Dunwich Horror, and, and I'll, I'll kind of speed things up here, because we get a whole... I love, I love this chapter, though, chapter seven, where we get all the different reports on what happens, because after Wilbur Watley dies, there's no one there to watch his brother. It's continuing to grow, uh, getting bigger. Eventually, it breaks free of the house, and we actually get a description from one of these witnesses of the house exploding like a, like a bomb is in the house. And that's him breaking free. It breaking free. It's it's invisible, can't really be seen, but its damage can be seen. It's just kind of tearing through town. Now it's heading towards Sentinel Hill, you know, to say the name of its father, where it's rid, these rituals were supposed to be performed. But Wilbur Watley's not there, so the threat is is at this point with the death of Wilbur Watley, the, the 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 cosmic threat is kind of toned down. It's it's not clear that this thing, this it, can perform these rituals without Wilbur's help. I mean, there's a reason why Old Man Watley was training him. So for about half the story, it seems the, the cosmic threat is downplayed. Instead, it's just the physical threat of this thing in Dunwich destroying the town. Right? But... A lot of fun here with the party phones with the media interest in what's happening here a lot of fun in the geography here's where what i mentioned before the geography of dunwich really re- being relevant is we we get the different places in the town he destroyed um, whole families are kind of just dist- are, are wiped out by the dunwich horror. you know bad stuff certainly but it, it does seem that the cosmic threat's gone i mean maybe he could do something maybe it's still there but anyways chapter eight now chapter eight this is what i meant it's kind of non-linear because it's it picks up right after where chapter six leaves off with armitage now like thinking like this guy wilbur he's not human (laughs) he was looking at the Necronomicon. something's going on here and and he got this weird town of dunwich i gotta deal with so he finds uh wilbur watley's uh diary he actually i think he had it delivered to miskatonic university i think it was found on the dead body and it gets sent to him to translate so he's you know because he he's the best at languages and the other language experts didn't couldn't get it and that's it's it's because it's it's got like a weird kind of regional type of Arabic. It seemed to have been ciphered, other languages used, a lot of the kind of ancient languages being used here. And then you got like some Sanskrit there, an unknown alphabet. It's like a mixture of ancient languages and then there's a cipher on top of it. So um, Armitage, he has to decode this cipher and figure out what this book is saying, right? Are these different languages themselves a cipher or whatever? Now it's a little bit simple. It's just like a page and a half where we go from this ciphered book to the translation of it. But Lovecraft doesn't really have the time to dwell on this. Although you can imagine, you know, that's a lifetime of study to kind of figure this out. But he figures it out pretty quickly. He's got the old, he's the, he's, he's, his cryptography game is pretty good, I guess. Let's just imagine that. Um, so we finally, like, we have actually the date where the breakthrough comes. It's September 2nd, um, and he reads a passage from November of the previous year. So it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's been a while um, since this was written, and we get uh, the thing that really freaks him out, because um, we get kind of the confession of what Wilbur Watley is kind of after, but we also get hope here we get a sign of of how to stop it quote they they from outside will help but they cannot take body without human blood that upstairs looks it will have the right cast i shall see it in a little when i make that worse sign or blow the power of ibn ghazi at it and it is like them that the may eve on the hill um end quote so there's a mention of how he can see his brother because it's invisible right That may account for why this is nonlinear as it kind of sets up the invisibility of the Dunwich Horror before we realize that it can be stopped or it can be seen through this um, Ibn Ghazi powder, which is some kind of thing that the Necronomicon, I guess, teaches how to make. Um, So he's worked to exhaustion deciphering this, figuring it out. He gets help, though, from these other professors, an anthropology professor and, and others, and they kind of agree to help him out. Um, And they don't know should we call the police can the police help what can we do to stop it and And armitage in kind of a quite heroic fashion says he's going to they're going to stop it They're going to stop this Dunwich horror right that even if the cosmic Threat may have died with wilbur there's still this thing terrorizing the town So that's the rest of the story Um, 9 and 10 the final two chapters of the book uh, uh, really cover a couple themes here. One is just the, the story of of how they make this powder, the spells that Armitage learns to put down the Dunwich Horror, and, you know, they go there and confront it, right? Now, a lot of this is told from the perspective of these witnesses through, like, a, a telescope. So they're watching them, and they're seeing seeing them kind of do their spells around this invisible creature on Sentinel Hill. But it really works I think. I think it's a it's a fun way that he kind of tells the story. Not from the maybe he's not the best at writing action you know. So by doing it from afar we just see these witnesses. We see these Denzians of Dunwich who maybe inbred, maybe backward, maybe you know. But not as not as evil as the Watleys, right? Just the victims of, of people like the Watleys. Kind of observing this and and seeing this thing defeated. But because they use that powder of Ibn Ghazi, which allows them to reveal it, they, they see for a moment, they see the Dunwich War in its full form. And we get the full description of it. This thing as big as a building with all the legs and the different faces and heads. It's now we're told at the end that you know, it looks more like its father than his brother. So Wilbur they're both the children of Yonks the Thoth, but the one looks more like his you know one looks more like his 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 father. The the one, the Dunwich War itself, looks more like his father, right? That's the, the climb, that's the final line of the of the whole story. But they do put it down. And they are able to banish it or kill it or whatever. They they end up doing with their with their magic. But Lovecraft's all a little bit vague about where this magic comes from and and, and how it's how it's used and harnessed. Um, which I guess compares, interesting with the case of Charles Dexter Ward, where there's a lot more focus on, uh, you know, this magic was hard to obtain. For Kerwin, I guess he does the same thing, though, where, like, the hero has to learn it overnight, right? Like, the spell that takes Charles Dexter Ward and Kerwin years and years to learn, the hero is able to learn it in in a few minutes, right? Anyway, that's what happens anyways. um, Now, I want to come back. The other thing that happens here is we're back to this theme of forgetting, right? Where part of what has to be done is this has to be like buried deep, just like we've seen in other stories. Um, What to be done is is partially an abolition of the truth, quote, Armitage, having read the hideous diary, knew painfully well what kind of manifestation to expect, but did not add to the fright of the Dunwich people by giving any hint or clues. He hoped that it might be conquered without any revelation to the world of the monstrous thing it had escaped. As the shadows gathered, the, na- the natives commenced to dispense homeward and anxious to bar themselves indoors, despite the present evidence that all human locks and bolts were useless. Useless. Or later on, right before, like the second to last paragraph of the story. Quote, there was some of it in Wilbur Watley himself, enough to make a devil and a precocious monster of him and to make his passing out a pretty terrible sight. I'm going to burn his accursed diary. And if you are men are wise, you'll dynamite that ultra stone up there and pull down all the rings of standing stones on the other hills. Things like that brought down the beans. Those Watleys were so fond of the beans they were going to let in tangibly to wipe out the human race and drag the earth off to some nameless place for some nameless purpose. So the solution is to ignore it, to cover it up. But he kind of leaves it to the people of Dunwich to do it, which is um, maybe not the best idea. I don't know. That's not what Willett would have done in, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. He would have made sure himself that it got done. Which is why I think that a sequel to the shore is, is plausible, right? It makes it makes a little bit more sense than a sequel to the case of Jehala's Dexter War. Anything else in the end here? Um No, I, I guess I guess that's enough. I think I've talked enough about this story. Um two episodes, two length two fairly long episodes to talk about this this story. Um, definitely read it if you haven't it's one of his greatest it's it's one of my favorite uh, lovecraft stories alongside charles dexter ward and Colored space Dunwich war these are like the kind of my my the three top they're in the top they're in the top 5 um, of my favorite stories i don't know like shadow over insmouth is is honorable mention up there it's it, it, to be one of those top 3 it's in the top 5 too same thing with dreams in the witch house it's it's i don't know i'm not a guy to make top 10 lists or top five list, whatever. Uh, maybe I'll try when I get through this podcast. Maybe I'll do it. But Shadow of Innsmouth is, you know, it's got other baggage that, that, of course, um, challenge is where we put it here. But I don't think there's any other... St- like, we've got seven main published stories coming up, right? And that's... In, in addition, we have the... The revisions, um, which I'll be talking about in upcoming episodes too. And the letters, we got a lot to do yet, but it's really only seven main Lovecraft stories yet to talk about. Um, starting with The Whisper in Darkness and ending with The uh, Haunter in the Dark. The Haunter of the Dark. So anyways, uh, I've talked a lot about the Dunwich Horror in the last couple episodes, a lot of my thoughts on it, and I hope it's a contribution to... Uh, to to readers and to to listeners i hope i've said something given you a perspective on the dunwich horror that maybe you didn't have before um that's the, that's my goal here to to uh maybe hopefully say something new otherwise why do this right there's, there's enough people who have said have talked about lovecraft on podcasts and on youtube i'm trying to say something new so if you have any uh advice or or ideas about any of those final last seven stories, give them to me and give them to me soon because um, <clears throat> I usually record these well in advance, but I got to do, I got one more story actually and the revisions to look at, but it's going to be a while before I, I jump into The Whisper in Darkness because I got letters to deal with. I think I'm going to look at volumes three and four of the letters, maybe back to back Um before getting back to stories, I'm not sure how many of the stories I'll look, or how many of the letters I'll look at, but it's going to be a while. And by then, this episode will be up, and hopefully, you can send me some thoughts about how I might approach the final set of stories. Um, maybe I'll do it in two sets. Maybe I'll I'll do like 1930. Maybe I'll do Whisper in Darkness, Mansions of Madness, sorry, Mountains of Madness. Mansions of Madness is the game. At the Mountains of Madness and Shadow over Innsmouth. Maybe I'll we'll do those three and then then do volume three of the letters. Volume four of the letters. And then pick up with Dreams of the Witch House, Shadow of Time, Thing on the Doorstep, and Haunter in the Dark. And break up the revisions uh, in those years too. So it'd be like 1930 to 31. Stories written then, and then the final stories written after 1932. Uh, would be good kind of break it up with the roosevelt years because we're in the great depression now right for the last rest of lovecraft's life and so breaking up kind of the pre-roosevelt and the post-roosevelt uh stories um well, maybe that'll help us to kind of make some sense of if if lovecraft's kind of used changed in the new Deal era um there's certainly a lot in his letters i mean i think to some degree it's from this point on, like his letters becoming actually more interesting than, than the stories in some way. I think, you know, that there's a less of the like the tedious letters that we dealt with in the last run. I think it's like he deal. He's a lot of like the selected letters. Anyways, a lot of good stuff on his politics, on the war, on the on fascism. His letters with uh, Robert E. Howard begin around this time. And I got to do those as well. So, anyways, that's what's coming up. But I got a few more stories to deal with first. I got uh, The Roman Dream. That's the next episode. Um, so I promised to do it as a separate episode, and I will. So the very next episode after this will be The Roman Dream, uh, The Very Old Folk. I guess it'll be a fairly short episode, because it's not a very long story. It's only, I think the audiobook's only 10, 15 minutes. It really is just a dream he recorded in a letter. But it has been published as a story So I'll, I'll treat, treat it as one as one, And then I got a handful Of relatively short Revisions And I think That will take us If you, if you follow the revisions chronologically I think it takes us up to The Mound But not including The Mound The Mound was actually published in 1930 So that will be pushed off And that's a big one But I may snick The Mound in Just do an episode on The Mound Because I love that story so much It's so much fun But I'll I'll have to decide that when I get to it. So I got probably seven eight episodes left before I get to those letters. The very old folks and then the revisions. I mean the mound. If I do it, it might be worth three or four episodes. It, it's like it's long. It's like as long as some of the really lengthy stories that he published under his name, like uh, at the Mountains of Madness. Very similar at really is thematically kind of set it aside, Mountains of Madness and, and Shadow of Time, and The Mound, right? Because all three were, ex- you know, some revisions are really that, revisions or collaborations. This one was really like 100% him, pretty much. So it really is a Lovecraft story. All right, that's enough. Enough about the future plans. So obvious um, But... My, what I'm asking is if you have any thoughts about this final set of stories, especially these final seven stories or some of the later revisions, let me know so I can kind of uh, contri- contribute that to my um, to my analysis. So anyways, uh, thanks as always for listening. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Join me next time when I'll talk about uh, the Roman dream story. and And yeah. That's it. So I will see you soon. Thanks for listening.